Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. Good evening and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, October 20th. Today, the 20th, yeah, 2016. This is Michael Norris along with Jay West. And is Jay hey, with us yet, Jay? Yes, he is. I'm and Jerry Oates. Hopefully, uh, Bobby Simmons will be joining us here. And uh, if he gets a chance, he's uh, got a speaking engagement tonight. At, uh, he's guest uh, speaking at a church uh, this evening. So he said that if he got a chance and got done there in time, he would uh, would call in to us so but uh jay and i were just talking to jerry before we went on the air about uh talking about the world series and uh because i was i was and i'm still pulling for the cubs because i mean the poor old cubs i mean they haven't won a world (laughs) series since 1908 and haven't been since 1945 but then uh cleveland who uh is definitely going they beat the uh the Blue Jays. They have uh, haven't won one since 1948. They've been four more times, including 1995 when the, when the Braves beat them in the World Series. But they haven't won one since 1948. And uh, the Dodgers haven't won one since 1988, which was the last time they've even gone. So it's going to be pretty historic, no matter which team plays Cleveland. Um, but I'm still kind of I'm I'm uh, I'm pulling for the uh, the Cubs, but uh, I won't be too disappointed if the Dodgers go either because the Dodgers have kind of grown on me here just watching them play. Actually, both they and the Cubs have been – it's been a good series between the two of them. Did, uh, I know you guys don't follow baseball as much as I do, and I'm reason I told, was telling Jay, I don't – I normally, if the Braves aren't in the postseason, I don't watch it, but I've – Gotten to where I love baseball so much, I'm watch. I've watched every game postseason, I'm wild cards and everything else. Yeah, I'm pulling for the Cubs. Uh, Jerry, I wanted to ask you, based on our conversation last week, if uh, your your area is getting back to any form of normalcy down there. Yeah, it's 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 getting close. Uh, uh, nearly all the out of town power trucks are gone. Uh, Alabama Power, uh, I talked to a guy at the gym today that works for uh, Georgia Power. He said when uh, Alabama got here, their job was to take care of the islands, and they did a fantastic job, I'm telling you. They, 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 they did. It was, it was unbelievable. But uh, it's, it's pretty much, you know, except for the, the powers, I think, everywhere in Savannah's own. And, uh, but... You know, there's still a lot of damaged homes and sure. property and all. But I think we're. I, I, I don't know of anybody that now that doesn't have power. The guy that worked for the power company, he told me today he was a week getting his power back on. 
He didn't get any perks from from the company, huh? (laughs) No, there was none there. That's obvious. You know, everybody, you know, they they thought that, you know, some parts of town said that the, you know, Ritzier places got it first. Well, that's that's not necessarily the truth. I mean, Alabama, he said Alabama Power had their their stuff already laid out what they were going to do. So they they covered Tybee Island, uh, uh, Wilmington Island. Uh, They were in our area here. So hats off to them. They did a fantastic job. But the cleanup now is just, it's, you, you wouldn't believe the trucks that that FEMA has hired out to try to remove all this stuff, and it's still, I don't know how long all that's going to take. They've got several places set up where they go dump it, and then they got this big sh- uh, shredders, you know, the chippers that uh-huh. turn it into mulch. And it's just, it's just, I don't know how long that'll last. I imagine it's sad to see some of the uh, some of the houses and some of the buildings there to the yeah, shape yeah, that they're sad. in now. Yeah, it's 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 so sad. It's it's just, and we were so blessed here where we are. I mean, not to, I mean, we were just blessed. We were blessed. I've got a friend of mine that uh, I met when I was working for the circus. She's a uh, she's a professional clown. She never worked for us, but she um, she would attend our shows whenever we were in Maryland because she she lives in Maryland. But she's part of the uh, a large um, clown association, and she and her husband have been volunteering in Lumberton, North Carolina, and oh, they're they're oh, still. I'm not sure about it as far as their power, but they've still got a lot of water problems down there, or up that's, there, that's, I should say. It's so sad to see that. I mean, it's, you, you just can't even imagine. You just you can't imagine. You just can't even imagine. So it, oh. it, it, it's been devastating. It could have been a lot worse now, don't get oh, me yeah. wrong. But, but uh, it, it's... Uh, it's a horrible thing. Well, I haven't heard any more about the uh, the ones that were building last week. The tropical storms out there—they kind of petered out. I hadn't heard a word about them. I don't even want to watch the Weather Channel. I hear you. <laughs> well, we're still—you know—we still still got uh, the end of this month, and which is coming close. And then we've got one more month before the official season is over. And it was, you know, not not normal for one to come uh, even as late as it did for the one down in Savannah. But uh, it's, you know, it's not impossible for us to have another one. But uh, uh, you know, I still I still feel, you know, it's the devastation, you know, that Jerry saw there. Uh, of course, it's very sad. But to think about those folks again in Haiti and in the area where it just devastated everything, it's know. you know. Well, the thing it's, is, those countries are so poor. I mean, yes. the United States, at least, you know, we've got, you know, some sort of preparation, whether they ever use it or not. But you think about most of the states that, that get severe weather of any kind, whether it's hurricanes, snow, blizzards, or, or, you know, whatever. There's some sort of emergency plan and in, in structure in place, whether to evacuate people or to... Like you know, Jerry was talking about to pull power pe- power companies from surrounding states to come in and, and jump on, and that stuff is planned. You know, 
weeks in advance if they know, you know. But those poor countries like that, man, I mean, they just, there's nowhere for those, It's you know, especially on an island like Haiti, there's nowhere for those people to go. Right. I, I know. You're, you're trapped. You're trapped. I mean, you're just, you're trapped. It's just a horrible situation. It's just well, our thoughts go out to those folks there and also the people involved in the recovery because you know it can't be an easy job for them either. No, it's no, no, no. Uh, that, that guy told me today he worked 170 hours in nine days. Wow. He said he's still dog tired. I mean, I, I just can't imagine. I, I can't imagine. They were ripping and running, ripping and running. And yeah, those guys definitely earn their money. They earned their money. And how they how they know what they're doing and where to start, I have no earthly idea. Me either. Well, you know, we we it's unusual for us to have something like that. It usually hits the tail end of Florida a little bit and goes up the east coast or, or around on the Gulf Coast and, and we very seldom get hit. Uh, so, so, you know, it's what happens is, like you talked about, the people, the power companies from Alabama and from New York and everywhere else that they've come in, we hear we hear very little about when it doesn't hit us uh, of our Georgia power assisting other places. So, you know, they've uh, uh, they're they're pretty well trained for what they do, and uh, you know, yeah. it, it, we we would be extremely. Uh, in extreme distress if it if it wasn't for those guys. I mean, we think about first responders and things like that who uh, who we need very much and don't get the applause and uh, recognition that they deserve. But these guys that uh, do this sort of thing, and then the guys that do the winter winter type work, and things like that. Uh, you know, they they other than when it actually happens, uh, people think about them very little. They they take them for granted. Yep. No, we take we take having lights and electricity for granted anyway. I mean, I get aggravated when there's a thunderstorm comes through here and I'm without lights for thirty minutes. So, sure. Sure. And you say, oh my, ba- you know my my computer's got uh, a backup battery, but then unless you've got some way to uh, access the internet without electricity, you're you're out of luck. You know. But the, the, you know we take everything for granted. I know when we was here, well, what from. We lost power. Well, it was early Saturday morning, really three o'clock. We didn't get it back till Monday. But when we got back to the house, you know, we thank God the weather was cool at night. I mean, it, it actually oh, was yeah. cold. Thank God for that. But it's funny. I, I told Kathy, I said, "Well, we'll be all right tonight. We just turn on the ceiling fans." She said, "You <laughs> idiot! You don't have any power. <laughs> yeah, it's like you don't have any air conditioning, but you got the ceiling fan, right? Yeah. Right. And, and I catch myself going to a light switch." You know, it's. It, I mean, it's. We're all creatures of habit. You know, it's. Sure. You, but I'll never take a bag of ice for granted again either. Uh, no, no kidding. Uh, we do have a small generator. We bought it uh, several years ago when, uh, not during the big ice storm we had uh, here two years ago, but uh, three or four years ago, uh, we had a situation with uh, somebody hit hit a major power spot, and we were out for three days. And uh, we kept seeing the trucks go by, and uh, nothing was happening. So uh, we bought a little generator, 
primarily to hook up to our freezer right in the garage because we were just about to lose a lot of stuff. And right. uh, so so at any rate, uh, you know, that was our our primary usage for that. But, uh, you know, uh, without, without air conditioning, uh, it, it, that became an issue for us too. But we were able to at least, as you're talking about ceiling fans and things like that, uh, we were at least able to uh, hook up a couple of fans and uh, run them into one room so that, uh, uh, you know, it helped considerably. I'm sure. I mean, the, the least little air moving was better than nothing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, if we really, if we really, uh, you know, were feeling it, we could always go out and get in the car and go for a ride. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Go sit in the car and turn the air on. That's right. That's right. And I took a couple items out there, by, you know, my small uh, radios and things like that, and, uh, you know, put them in the cigarette lighter and uh, uh, just, just rode around so that they'd charge up. But uh, so, so it wasn't really bad. It was kind of like a camping trip, you know, in a way. But uh, uh, you you really don't miss it until it's not there, and then all of a sudden, what an issue! It's a big issue. Yes, we're so you know dependent on it now. Yep. Okay, so, Mike, we've covered. We covered baseball. And we've covered all that. Uh, what's what's oh, up? Oh, one more one more baseball item. Um, again, I know you guys aren't aren't you know big baseball fans or anything, but anybody that's listening to us, it may may be um, one of the um, Braves relief pitchers is a gentleman by the name of Mark um, Matt Marksberry. He um, he is in uh, intensive care in severe. Uh, or serious condition, um, and I, I still ha- I haven't found out anything because as to what's going on, the only thing I know of, he went to, he was suffering from a non-baseball-related illness that was causing him to be severely dehydrated. He went to have some sort of treatment done to combat the dehydration, now, whether it was a drug that they gave him or something that they were doing to him. But anyway, he... he um, had a lung collapse, and they reported yesterday he was on life support. But that, you know, people jump to a conclusion with them. People right. tell you life support, but me now being the hospital expert that I have been forced to become for the last three years, life support could mean anything as far as if he had a lung collapse, he had a, he was on a ventilator, I'm sure. Right. I'm sure that's what they're considering life support. But the Braves can't officially because of the laws with dealing with people's health issues, since it's not baseball-related, the Braves can't come out and say what it is. Right. But uh, that was the report yesterday that he was on life support. Um, today they're, they're saying that uh, he is showing some improvement. He's only 26 years old. Um, he's a, he's a, a middle reliever. Um, we were, we He came to us last season, and he has spent the majority of his time in in the minors, but he has had a couple of stints um, with the uh, major league team. But uh, anybody out there is a fan of of Matt uh, Mar- what what I say is Matt Marksberry, or any family members. Our thoughts and prayers are with him and with them. Because um, you know that's just something when you're a professional athlete, as as you know, 
we all were at one point or another, and I do include being a musician, being an athlete, because having to lug around, especially since you played a Les Paul, you had your workouts every day, too. Or every uh, day. I tell you what, I think back on it today, I was talking <laughs> to my wife about my aches and pains, and I said, you know, it's it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, my back is not in great shape. And I said, to, to think about when I used to work all day, uh, and then we would, on a Friday, and then we would go set up and play on a Friday night uh, and then travel 50, 50 miles home and then unload and then maybe do it the next day. I said, you know, it's just, you know, just, just to think about what we did and, and, and how I complain now about my bad back. I said, I don't know how I did it then. Uh, well, but, you know uh, what yeah. you were doing. You yeah, know, <laughs> well, that, that's doing. true. That's true, and I, you know, I'm one of these guys that, uh, uh, you know, my wife says I'm kind of a control freak, but you know, I always figured my job was done when we got there, we unloaded, we got the stuff set up, and all the musicians were in place. That way, I could take a breath and, uh, you know, deal with the promoter if I had to. But uh, you know, even though I played in the band, uh, I I wasn't the lead guitar player and I wasn't the primary singer, so. Uh, I, when that was done, predominantly my job was done uh, until we got paid at the end of the night. So yeah, it was a it was a a big load. But uh, people just don't realize, you know, when a, when a band's working like that, unless they're you know big time band and they've got all these roadies, uh, they just don't realize how much work goes into uh, driving, setup, taking down. And uh, getting home safely—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a big job uh, outside of the performance. And uh, I'm sure Bobby can relate to that with taking down rings and things of that nature. Yeah, that's why the uh, the old what they used to call the Chitlin circuit, where all the uh, R&B players played, that was controlled by—I uh, don't remember what it was. It was T.O.B.A. was the and it stood for something something booking agency right but the old joke was that toba stood for tough on black asses because you know <laughs> the, all the, all the uh traveling that they had to do to you know places uh, yeah, like and, and, peacock and, in atlanta and the the howard in in chicago and the uh uh or was it the regal i don't know and the regal i think was in dc and then the apollo and places like that I mean, I cannot uh, imagine being a traveling musician for a living. I mean, wrestling yeah, was bad yeah, I, you know, like I said, I, I never did it full time, but we did it. Uh, we played 420 jobs in 10 years, and uh, you know, we were we were on the road most weekends. And uh, you know, the other thing, and you guys can relate to that too. You have a type of individual that maybe follows you around, and it may be good, and it may not be good, and uh, in in certain occasions, it can become you know, even a mental issue, and uh, you have to be very, very careful when you're uh, when you're dealing with those people. And also, you got the kind like you know, my wife was. Uh, I will say was she is attractive now. I will not say she's not, uh, but you know, then just particularly on stage type work, she had she had there was a lot of guys that uh, you know were interested in her and thought after they had a quart of whiskey that she'd be interested in them. Uh, so th- that that was another issue that you, you know, had to deal with. It, it it wasn't just standing up there and playing a few chords and saying, yeah, hey, I'm a musician. 
You know, and I've never, we've never talked about this as far as you, Jerry, but, but with Kathy, with her traveling with the, the ice shows and everything, what kind of tra- travel arrangements did she do? Did she drive her own car? Did they travel together in no, a bus? No, or? no they, they, they uh, provided transportation for them. Travel on trains, buses, a lot of trains. But that's still, that's just, that's not easy either. No. Uh, how long did you do that? How, how long did you uh, do that, Jerry? Seven, seven years. Wow. And they'd wind up in, uh, the, the, they'd finish their tour in um, Mexico, Mexico City. Gee. They were there for two weeks. Same arena every night. Sell it out every night. Of course, you know, how big Mexico City is, of course. But, uh, yeah, she, uh, you know, but when you're young, you you just you know you just do it. You know, it's right. And 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 you're happy to do it too. You know, at that point, exactly. you don't think you don't you don't think about what's going to happen after you've done this for a while. No, and it's funny you mentioned all that because we were talking about last night where all she went and places that she went had skated. And then when she married me. Like when we went to Houston, she skated in the Sam Houston Coliseum. She, she, of course, uh, there were some states they didn't go to because uh, uh, ice capades. You know, they had their own territory and they didn't go into other. You know, uh, when we went to Oregon, she wrestled. I mean, Russell, She skated in a uh, <laughs> this gigantic building in uh, in Portland. She says the biggest ice they ever skated on. Wow, was in Portland. That we we never wrestled in that building. I saw it. I mean, it was gigantic. And then she said the worst place they ever skated was Fort Hesterly Armory. <laughs> I cannot imagine. How in the I hell did they even it. keep ice in that place? As hot as that building was. She said, you know, you those. She's got pictures of all of those costumes she wore. And all. She said those girls. She said we actually thought we was gonna catch on fire. It was so hot in there. <laughs> And so that ice, you know, I mean, the, the ice show, they had their own ways of, you know, putting down the ice. They brought right. in, you know, they brought in their own, how they did, you know, they that's why they travel on trains, like they had so much equipment, tractor trailers and all, but how they how they kept it turning into slush in, in, in Fort Hesterly Armory, I have no idea. No, I hope they didn't, not. none of them had to use the baby face dressing room. That would have been hell coming down those stairs in, in blades. <laughs> I don't. I, I, you know, I didn't ask her about the dressing rooms. She said a lot of times they 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 dressed outside. You know, had big like tents formed. Because uh-huh. you can just imagine the the crates they had with all those costumes and you know, I, you know, I need to ask her about that Fort Hesley Army where they dressed. Cause they couldn't have gone in that steps with those big costumes on and you know, but it, right. it, it's uh. And we were talking about that very thing last night, you know. And she said it wasn't like a job; it's just what you did, you know. All right. You 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 couldn't wait for that music to start and those lights start and right. there you go. And she yep. told me she was in uh, she was in Portland, Oregon, and she was getting ready. It was the opening act. She was she was ready to, you know, the music starts and boom, here they come. And she said the show director come up to her and she said, why they did this, I don't know. She said, uh, 
Now, we talked about this last night. She said the show director come up and said, uh, we just got word from your mother that your grandfather passed away. Oh, yeah. Right before she hit the ice, and the lady told her, she said, I'm very sorry. And she said, get to work. So <laughs> she she goes out, and they went out, and she said, I'll never forget this. They went out and stopped, and they're facing, you know, the audience. And she said she heard this lady say, she said, I was looking at it, and she said, I heard her say it. She said, I think that girl's crying. She said she had just tears just, right. you know, rolling down her cheeks. I said, they should have told you after it was over. I mean. I, I agree. Why? What I mean, was the purpose know. of that? You know, now that I don't know. She said she never did understand that why they did it. I mean, hmm. yep. You know, yeah. My my mother had been sick for a while, but <clears throat> she died the day before we had a uh, a, a big show that we were going to do the following day. And uh, you know, uh, she, she she would see us play from time to time, and and uh, that was uh, that was very tough on me. But you know that's part of showbiz, uh, and uh, the show must go on, as uh, as everybody has said. It's just uh, part of the way it would work. But after I'd work all day uh, at my army job, and then uh, you know we'd set up at night, and I'd be dragging. But uh, like Jerry was talking about with his wife, just as soon as we started, uh, you know, and the people would go out there and they'd start dancing and whatever. Uh, you know, you'd perk up. It was uh, you perk up. Yeah, it was your time to entertain. They paid well, did you guys see find it. it when when you were when you were traveling, especially if you were traveling, you know, a distance, um, to do a spot, you know, uh, to make a town? And did you find your uh, you were more keyed up and you couldn't wait to get to the building and all that stuff? And then you just you know you just couldn't wait. <clears throat> That's the way I was. I was always, of course, I I drove all the time. Um, I usually had people with me, but um, even if I, because I didn't, I didn't trust to ride with anybody. So I was, you know, other than that one time I got stuck with Little Duke and the sheep herders, I, I always <laughs> drove myself and had guys with me. But I was that way, you know. Even though I was going to some podunk place like you know Boaz, Alabama, or Oneonta, or a Tala, or so you know I was, but I was keyed up. I couldn't wait to get to the building, and then you know, right. and then once my match was over, you know, and I I generally stayed because until the guys that were traveling with me were done, you know, and then and by that time I'd kind of started to wind down a little bit, but that drive home was was so long. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We don't heat uh, up anymore, and, and you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you knew you had to whatever you had to do when you got home. Uh, usually, usually we had a you know we had a van, and uh, my wife would drive, and uh, and you know I'd sit in the front seat, and then usually the keyboard player and the drummer we had you know they'd load our all their stuff in our van, uh, and uh, they were in the back, and you know they were zonked out. And, uh, you know, and uh, here we were trying to keep each other awake, uh, you know, driving home. Uh, so we talk about, the, you know, the gig, but uh, uh, bad or good. But, uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was always rough. You know, I found that after, I, you know, in my regular, my normal work life after I was out of the business, I couldn't, I couldn't get off work and just go home. 
it just didn't feel right to me. I had to do something to unwind. Uh, yep. uh, thankfully, I was not a drinker, so it wasn't like I stopped by the neighborhood bar. Every once in a while, I'd go, you know, go have a drink with somebody I worked with or something. Especially when I worked at the uh, the Macy's downtown, we had a bar in the basement. Um, so I would go down there periodically and have a beer or two. But I just and and even when I was a drove lived a a or worked a distance from home where it was like an over an hour drive home, I would. Luckily, I discovered drive-through liquor stores um, where I could pick up a couple of beers and, and drink on the way. It was just something that was instilled in me from the wrestling business, and it took me a good 10, 12 years after I was out of the business before I quit, you know, needing that wind-down time. You, can you know, and even – and I, and I was have never been able to – it's like when I worked uh, – I, I had a job where I worked uh, – third shift i worked from midnight till six in the morning i couldn't come home and go to bed you should have ridden around the block (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'd be i'd be worn out by the time i got home and i i could i was sleepy but i i've never been one to be able to just come in and go to bed you know Um, yeah i'd I'd have to sit up and do something uh, Fort Gillum, where I worked, was a small post over here in Forest Park. And uh, when I'd get off work, I could change clothes right there at the door. And uh, they had a perimeter uh, track, you know, that went around the post. And uh, if the weather was half-assed decent, that's what I'd do. I'd uh, spend about 45 minutes running in the afternoon. And by the time I finished doing that and got back to uh, my office and changed clothes and went home, I was I was done. You know, that helped a lot. Kept yeah. my weight down. That wind and, down, uh, period. Yeah, it made me want to, you know, I'm ready to go to sleep at night. But uh, uh, if the weather was extremely bad, then uh, nothing I could do about it. But even in, you know, weather that was not all that great, you know, I'd, I'd still get out. But I, I, I knew in 25-degree weather I wasn't going to go out there and do anything. <clears throat> True. All right, well, Mr. Oates, you're up with your Kelly twin story. I can't. I've been waiting all week to hear this. Well, I might have told this story before, but I'm gonna. You know, sometimes I look back. I was I wasn't a big river or the biggest. Never claimed to be a big river, you know. But I just anyhow, maybe God's punished me for what I did to the Kelly twin. <laughs> <laughs> All these years, but it was a it was a situation where you know, like I've told you, ninety five percent of my trips I, I either drove or went by myself. That was just not to be a loner, but I like my own vehicle, you know, because I wasn't gonna be late. Sure. And I was going, and after the matches, I was going home. I don't care, right. you know. If I was supposed to go home that night. I, I I made a beeline and went home. That was just how I did business. But anyhow. Somehow or another, the Kelly Twins had been in the territory long, and I, I was kind of, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call it a gift or what, but I, if something wasn't right, I'd pick up on it right now. Some guys, you know, it would just go over their head. And, well, the first few, uh, several nights, uh, you know, there was, I was in the same dressing room with them. I said, something wrong with these jokers. I mean, <laughs> just, watch, just watching them lace up their boots, I mean, Something wasn't right, you know. A hand fly up in there. I don't know if they had Tourette or what, you know. A hand would <laughs> yeah. fly up in the air, and 
Another one go in, he'd touch a spot on the wall or yep. open the locker and shut it back, and it's not, he's not even using it. And I mean, just what is going on? I, I thought that they were ruining the guys, you know. So I don't know how Klondike Bill and I got hooked up with them. I, I, I have no idea. We were, we were going to go uh, to Gainesville, and I don't know what I was doing in Atlanta to, to hook up a ride with them. Because I, I, after that match, I, you know, like Gainesville, I'd always go back to Columbus. So we're riding up there with them, and they, 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 they're touching, one of them would touch a spot on the dash. <clears throat> and I'm sitting in the Klondike, and I'm sitting in the back watching all this. The Klondike don't think he wasn't funny. So we're watching this, and I'm giving him an elbow in the back seat. And then another one, he, he'd reach up and touch the rearview mirror. And this this went on from Atlanta to a, a all the way to Gainesville, you know. So we uh, we get to the matches there in Augusta. I mean, a Gainesville and wrestle, and you know, they all get back in the car. And so they had just bought this car. I don't know if it's the first car they ever had or what. I don't know how they got to to the Georgia territory or what, but they bought this car. It, it was a nice car. It's a used car, but it, it was a nice car, four door car. I think it was a Pontiac. So. We, we, you know, Klondike, he's got to stop and get his, he called it a baloney blowout. So we stopped somewhere and get something, you know, snacks or whatever and drink. So I got me a bottle of Gatorade. So we start back toward Atlanta. And they, they still in the dark. I can see them with the dash lights on. They touching <laughs> stuff going on. What the heck is this? So I take that, you know, the hump in the back floorboard with, with the drive shaft, you know, they always had a hump yeah. in the back. I take that whip on interstate going back. They they run. They not they just doing speed limit. They not speeding. So I, I take that Gatorade bottle and I start boom 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 on that on that hump. And I you know I I wouldn't do it real loud and boom 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 and they start looking at each other. He one asked the other said, "You hear that?" He said, uh, "I think I heard something." You know. So, I'd ease off and we'd go a little bit further. I'm boom, 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 boom. The other one said, I heard it now. He said, I heard it. I said, I think I heard something. So Klondike, he chimed in. He said he heard something. Then it eased up and it started bumping again. Boom, 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 boom. So they said, he, one of them said, well, what do y'all think it is? I said, it sounds like a tire to me. I said, I don't know. I said, I've never heard nothing quite like that. So, it stopped again. It started up. I said, yeah, I think that's a tire. You could have a knot on the tire. Because I had a car do that one time. I had radio tires. Uh-huh. It got a bulge in it. I said, it could be a tire. Well, I shouldn't have said that. So they pull over. They pull over. And I don't know which one it was. He gets out, and he's looking for a knot. As he's just barely rolling. I don't hear nothing. He gets back in the car. He looks at all four tires. Nothing. Get back in the car. Here it goes again. Well, it did that. All, they they pull over again. They, I, they one of them said, "I think there's something getting hot. Motor's getting hot." I said, "No, it don't sound like the engine." I said, "I don't know what that." Anyhow, did this all the way back to Atlanta. It must have taken three hours to get back to Atlanta. <laughs> I'm gonna cut my own throat. <laughs> so they, they're panicking. They're panicking. I mean, they are having a hissy fit. They go take the car back where they got it. They ain't have it two or three days. 
take the car back where we got it. So we, I said, well, look, I said, just just keep going. You know, the further we go, the closer we get back to Atlanta in case something happens. Anyhow, it made that noise all the way back to Atlanta. <laughs> I thought Klondike was going to jump out the back door. He was laughing. <laughs> but anyhow, come to find out, I found out the next night that they found the all-night garage. They took that car that night to the garage. They said they didn't leave there at about 3 o'clock in the morning. They had that guy wow. go over that car. I don't tell what they spent. They had him check the tires, the motor, everything. And that was my experience with the Kelly Twins. And I think <laughs> I've been funny for it ever since. That's unbelievable. But it, it was, yeah, it yeah, was one it, of those it, things. Uh, with twins, uh, I've never heard of that, but that Tourette thing sounds uh, uh, pretty reasonable. I'd never noticed them doing that in the ring. They could have been, but uh, never seen them in the dressing room. But that, uh, you know. Well, the, the touching uh, and getting out and opening clothes, that sounds like uh, it's a form of ADHD. If you yeah, ever watch the TV show them, Monk, huh? Yeah. Was you ever around them? Yeah, I was not in the business. The only time I was around them was when they were in the Mobile Territory, but I was not in the business yet. I was doing okay. stuff, you know, I was doing stuff for Lee Fields, and I was around them a little bit. But, you know, I never, I, I wasn't allowed to, you know, do a lot of hanging around the, the dressing right. rooms or anything. So right. I never, never was around them much. But uh, like I told you, they, uh, they were Mobile, were getting a push. They were the tag champions, and then they just. Got in their car and left. Yeah, they, they, you know, I, I had never experienced anything like that. I, I, I just didn't, and I, they, they had something. I don't know what kind of tick they had or something. I mean, I got ADD, but attention deficit disorder, but I, I don't know what. This but there's a, there's a compulsion that people do that. That you know, people that will wash their hands all the time, and there's right. people who will right. Um, you know, they have to, before they go to bed, they have to open and close their closet two or three times and turn the lights on and off and, you know, knock on the wall or something like that. I've never been around anybody like that, but I've I've, I've heard of it. Uh-huh. Well, these fellas, they, 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 I mean, even lacing their boots, they won't all fly up in the air or something. I mean, I'm going, they, 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 they just doing it, but that, that wasn't the case. I mean, you ride in the car with them, and, 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 and they they wouldn't say anything about it. They just did it, you know. You know, they wouldn't. You know, after a while, if I was in the car, my brother, he keeps touching the dash in a certain spot. I said, man, what's wrong with you? You know? <laughs> what's what they, you know, what? But there was no, nothing like that. It was just, uh, it was normal to them, you know. Sure. But I, wor- well, I worked with a guy. He was not, you know, he didn't have ticks like that, but he was, it was he had to keep his desk a certain way. His pencil had to be here, and his, mm-hmm. his stapler had to be here. His phone had to be here. Right. And I'd wait till he, I'd catch him on the phone with somebody, and I'd walk by and I'd I'd knock his staple out of the way. Just I'd move it an inch or two, and he would yep. he would literally shake. <laughs> you see, there's, yep. there's, something, there's something going on upstairs with somebody. Yeah, right? I, I fixed yep. him one day. He was out. He was out in the field one day. He had to go do a, a, a walkthrough of a switching office for the phone company. And while he was gone, I recruited a bunch of other people, and I took. He had one of those desks that 
it looked the same front and back, except the drawers were in the front, but the back side it looked identical. The top was uh-huh. there. so I took his desk and I turned it around and put Ooh. the drawers up against the wall. Oh. And of course, he sat down and was you know going through, it, and he went to get something out of his drawer and noticed his drawers weren't there anymore. I thought he was going to go through the roof. I did that a lot. That's another thing I could. It took me a long time to get out of the habit of. In fact, I don't think I ever got out of the habit of was pulling ribs on people. I did, did that to uh, another he... when I worked at when I worked at Macy's. We had uh, um, uh, our um, credit manager was off one Saturday, and I just she and I were good friends, so I just decided I was going to pull a rib, and I did the same thing to her. I turned her desk around to where her drawers were up against the wall. <laughs> But you see, I mean, that, that, that's honest, real. But see, this fellow with the desk now—that was serious to him. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, I mean, and, that, and yeah. you see, and I knew it because I got—I'd go by and I'd—I'd I'd like grab it. He kept a—he kept a jar or a, you know a pencil holder with pens and stuff on. I take them all out and lay them on his desk. You know, while he's on the phone, and I use—I I purposely did it when he was on the phone because he couldn't say anything. He couldn't stop in the middle of a conversation and come after me or anything. He probably have to count them all <laughs> before he put them back in wherever they were. I, you know, oh, I've got yeah. some of that. I got some of that. I like things to be just exactly right, you know. But I—I—I'm—I'm uh, I'm not to the point where I have ticks or anything like that. But if I put one of the cats out at night, if they want to go out, and uh, I'm getting ready to go upstairs, and I lock the door. I'll have to go. I start up about three steps. I'll say to myself, did I lock the door or did I just shut it? And I'll have to go back and check it again. So, you know, it just depends. Everybody has different forms of that, I think. And some people don't realize it. Yeah, some people realize it and then some other people don't uh, unless it's brought to their attention. And then they say, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, I I used to date a girl that couldn't couldn't go to bed if if the closet door was open. Is that right? Yeah. Something was going to get her. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Maybe she wanted you to go check it out, Mike. Who knows? Yeah, well, we didn't date long enough for that. Oh. Yeah, but, it's, it's uh, amazing what the mind will do to you. That's true. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jay, I know you wanted to talk about uh, somebody else in the business that we lost here within the last uh, week or so. Um, was never Sterling associated Brewer. with Georgia, but uh, a gentleman by the name of Sterling Brewer, who uh, that's correct. This uh, he did. I think he did the Atlanta. I'm not Atlanta. He did Birmingham TV, and I think he was also the commentator for Huntsville TV for Goulas. Well, for you, what sure. I've got it. It says he did Birmingham and Nashville, uh, according Nashville. to the wrestling. From uh, Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, I never met the man, Sterling Brewer, a pro wrestling announcer from the 50s through the mid-70s, passed away on September the 30th at the age of 90. Brewer was Nick Goulas' announcer for television in both Birmingham and Nashville in the 50s and the 60s. I didn't realize he was that old. He was uh, known locally for the phrase he used at the end of the show, be a good sport, you've got a chance. Uh I think we get a little feedback on the phone right now. I don't know why. But anyway, uh, he uh, quit working in Nashville. It doesn't give a time frame on that, uh, but remained in Birmingham into the 70s for the city's live Saturday night show. And he was also the ring announcer for the Monday night cards at the Boutwell Auditorium. Did you did you ever see him, Mike? 
No, because when when I started uh, um, working and going to Birmingham, Mike Jackson was the, the ring announcer, and um, that's kind of how I hooked up with him to um, start getting bookings over in Atlanta, because he was the he was Fuller's ring announcer. So I don't right. know. Did, did, does it say that Sterling did anything outside of wrestling? Was he like a local disc jockey or anything like yeah. that in either one of those places? Yeah, getting to that, though, in 1972, and I remember this. It's 40 years ago now, 40 years plus, uh, when uh, almost everybody that worked for Georgia Championship Wrestling, I'm quoting again from the Wrestling Observer, uh, quit and went to Ann Guckel's All-South Wrestling, including TV announcer Ed Capel, considered one of the best in the business, uh, the uh, the NWA group brought in Brewer from uh, from uh, Birmingham to be the lead announcer on Channel 17 in Atlanta. Uh, now I remember that very well. I was watching to see what was going to happen between the time all the All South people left as to uh, what they were going to do with the TV show. I mean, the first week when uh, things went to hell, there was Leo Garibaldi uh, on TV with a you know, just a, a a back wall where he had a picture of all the guys that they were bringing in, and there was uh, Paul Jones standing next to him. And uh, so I was, you know, really wondering what they were going to do on TV that first week. But anyway, they brought Brewer in from uh, from uh, from Birmingham, and he did a, you know, he did a good job. He he he, you could tell he. Oh, knew, he was very good. I like him. Yeah, you know, he, you could tell he knew wrestling. Uh, and, you know, even though he wasn't particularly familiar with storylines, you got to remember there weren't any storylines because right. uh, these were all guys coming in starting uh, a new situation for the Atlanta office. So that was one thing he didn't have to worry about. And I'm sure he'd seen most of the guys at one time or another as long as he'd been a professional announcer. But the thing that didn't click for him was, particularly comparing him to Capital, he, he, he had kind of a you know, a small-town attitude about him. And people here just weren't used to that. And uh, he worked three or four shows. I remember it quite well. And uh, I I thought he was adequate, but uh, I just didn't think he was right for Atlanta. And obviously uh, the Atlanta office uh, decided the same thing based on, uh, you know, the the, uh, interaction they were getting from the the fans. And uh, that's when Eddie Graham convinced them to bring Gordon in. So Sterling just stayed until... Uh, they could make that transition, and he did. Uh, and so that was, you know, the only things that I saw on him with TV on TV was when he worked here prior to, you know, Gordon coming in and and Ed Capital leaving. And that's kind of an asterisk in the in the book for announcers. But uh, at any rate, uh, going on with what you were saying about what he did, uh, he did. Uh, he was a local radio and TV reporter who did everything from the news uh, anchor to the sports director to being the weatherman. And after his days as a media personality and a wrestling personality, he started an advertising agency. And this was very similar to what Ed Capel did and also Freddie did. And in addition to that, he drove a school bus for 20 years, and then he ran the AAA clock repair business. Uh, probably doing that, he was trying to get the quarters that he needed, my guess, for Social Security, uh, you know, before he totally retired. And he may have just uh, enjoyed doing that sort of thing. But there comes a point when a guy's an announcer uh, 
where things change and it's very, very difficult to find work, particularly if you're a major market kind of guy. It was probably a little bit easier for him. But what was going on, if you remember, uh, the things were changing and guys that in the 50s and early 60s could be anchor persons, uh, then they became the sports guy and then maybe they were the weather guy. And then, you know, other things were taking place and it was very, very hard for these older guys to find work. I think the same thing happened to, to Freddie Miller to a, to a great extent, and that's how he got hooked up with Georgia Championship Wrestling. That's just my opinion. Uh, and Ed Capel had a lot of other things that he could do. But, in fact, you know, they were the, the old days of the staff announcers. They were uh, movie hosts, game show hosts, kid show hosts. They would do the local dance parties and things like this. And most of those personalities from that time that did that kind of stuff, they were also the guys that got, uh, the, you know, pinpointed and said, uh, you're going to be the host for the wrestling show. And uh, Ray McKay did that initially in Atlanta, and then uh, uh, after Ray, then Ed Capel did it for many, many years. And that was pretty much the same thing in other areas like Bill Cardill uh, and, you know, Dave Brown and Lance Russell, who did it for so many years in Memphis. But uh, they were a little bit different, Brown and Russell, uh, you know, as, as you were talking about that Memphis show having the support that it did and the ratings that it did, that Brown and, and Lance Russell were icons unto themselves, unlike probably anybody else in the country. And, uh, you know, Brown was a meteorologist and uh, uh, Russell was a program director and a news director for several of the stations. But it, it became very hard for the guys that were the 60s and 70s uh, people on the air to continue to work as we went into the 80s. And they ended up finding other things to do. But uh, Russell was uh, was quite adequate. I mean, uh, Brewer was quite adequate. And uh, he just was not quite major market material enough, <clears throat> excuse me, for Atlanta. Well, I, Sorry, I've seen uh, and have, have owned um, a lot of, footage from from uh, the 70s and during Gulas's promotion a lot of it was you know um, recorded in Birmingham and, and mm-hmm. um, so I've heard um, uh, Sterling Brewer's work and and I thought he was very good I mean in fact oh, yeah? I, and I, I'm gonna get heat for this but I thought he was better than Lance Russell um, and Lance and that's not to put Lance Russell there Lance Russell was very good as well but Lance just I don't know he was just uh, I don't know more folksy sounding yep. than than Brewer was. Brewer actually sounded like you know somebody you'd hear calling a sports. Yep. You know, presentation. in his in the way he yeah. did the show, as was Gordon. Exactly. Uh, Ed Capper. I mean, Ed none, Capper none, was, none of them were ever as good as Gordon Solo. I mean, the only one. No, Ed Capper was a little to. bit more. Ed Ed Capper developed a style that it was a little bit more like a deer in the headlights. Uh, yeah. You know, he knew everybody. He'd bring in Charlie Harbin or somebody else to sit beside him uh, to act as his, uh, you know, the guy that knew the sport. Uh, and and Ed would make comments from time to time. But when these heels would come out and Ed would interview them and they'd do some of the weird stuff that they would do, Ed would just look, you know, he, he, he looked like he couldn't believe what they were doing. And uh, that that was his style. Lance Russell was a very pro uh, babyface, uh, you know, 
and that and that showed on the television show, and I think that had a lot to do with the fan base there. But he worked at the TV stations there for many, many, many years. Yeah, as yeah did I mean, Dave he Brown. had to. He couldn't, he, you know, he had to be that way. Right. Um, because and they expected of, uh, what him to be that way, but um, but yeah, I I enjoyed Sterling Brewer. What I've heard of him, mean, I was just thinking here, wondering what caused him to go get him. And I was thinking, why didn't they try and use Jim Carlisle? But then I remembered when the first split first happened, uh, Fred Ward was initially aligned Went with, with and Yep. And uh, they br- so I guess that's what kept them from trying to use Jim Carlisle. That's true, and they brought up. Who was uh, also uh, very good. I, I enjoyed his work as well. The name just escaped me. The guy that they brought up, Jim Bell. They brought him up. Uh, he was the ring announcer at the Griffin uh, for Griffin at the old Sports uh, Palace down there, and Jim worked at WGRI in, in Griffin, and I knew him peripherally, and uh, you know th- they used him until Freddie came in and, and started doing the announcing. Uh, so. I knew Jim a little bit, and that helped me when uh, our station ran some spots for the Atlanta uh, show, for the Atlanta booking office. And then by knowing Jim, uh, he wanted Jim wanted to become a referee. And uh, so he was doing the ring announcing on TV. Uh, this was after Gordon took over. And uh, Jim went to Freddie Miller uh, because I had talked to Jim and discussed with Freddie me and then I don't know who all Freddie had to talk to, uh, but that's uh, how I got the initial uh, job that I had uh, as ring announcer uh, in '74. So you were the only one I remember. Yep. But I didn't start coming there until '81. So. Well, well, Freddie, you know, he would when I was not there for whatever reason. Uh, Freddie didn't like doing ring announcing. He didn't want to do it at the auditorium. He didn't want to do it on TV. Uh, so when I wasn't available, you know, he would, he would, uh, he'd he do would it do ringside. It. Yeah. Now <laughs> he wouldn't when, uh, now when, uh, after the first 14 or 15 weeks, uh, that I did that, then whoever came in after, uh, uh, Harley races Booker, uh, then, uh, they brought in Les Thatcher to work with Gordon. And when they did that, then they dropped me from ring announcer, and they put Freddie. They made Freddie do it, and uh, for the, the time that Les was here, and uh, then Freddie. Then I started doing the ring announcing on Friday night at the auditorium, and uh, when Jim wasn't available, I did Griffin, and then Jim just quit doing ring announcing, and uh, start, started refereeing, and until the old Griffin spot went away down there. Uh, the Sports Palace, uh, I was the uh, ring announcer there. So, you know, I'd, I had a couple of spots to work, even when I wasn't working TV then. Yeah, I, Les was the one I was going to say is the only. He was he was right below Gordon to me, but Gordon was, was absolutely the best. But oh, yeah. Les, Les was a close sec- second. I mean, Les did, uh, he did Fuller Show in Knoxville. Of course, he always had, Les always was more or less the the expert commentator. He right. did the color yeah. and not the, the play-by-play, more or less. He had, um, I can't think of what the guy's name was in Knoxville that he was with. Um, 
it'll come to me after shows are with. But then when uh, Ron first started up uh, after he bought out Lee Fields <clears throat> and started use taping in Dothan for the first probably four to six weeks, he used Gordon. Right. Gordon I came in on tape. Saturdays. On Saturday, uh, and I don't know how he did it. Um, I guess he would leave Atlanta TV, and they must have been taping. I you know I don't know when they would have taped that show. Where, where, where are you talking about now? Dothan. Oh yeah, when, that was when the, Fuller, that was the big that was the big deal that got me back doing the, the reannouncing on TV. Uh, when. Uh, they they got Gordon to do the ring announcing down in Dothan. Uh, whoever he was, was just doing their t- he was doing their TV commentary. Yeah, he would go from Atlanta. Uh, he'd go down to Dothan, and then he'd go home. But the TV show would run late on Saturday, you know, and it would put Gordon late to make it to Dothan. And so they told Gordon he couldn't do Dothan anymore. And he Gordon basically said, "Screw you." And Gordon was, this was 76. Uh, Gordon was off of the Atlanta show for about right. six weeks. See, he wouldn't, wouldn't have been, he wasn't doing Dothan until 78. Well, wh- whenever this was. Uh, yeah. he, he he went down there, because th- 76 was when I started uh, doing TV again. So this was a situation where he went, whoever was doing Alabama at the time, uh, he went there and 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 he didn't do the TV show for six or seven weeks. And Freddie had to do the TV show, and so Freddie called me. You know, I was doing ring announcing on Friday night, and and uh, so at any rate, he said, "Can you do the ring announcing on TV again?" And I worked it out with wherever I was working at the radio station, so I could come in in the morning. And uh, so that's how I started ring announcing again in '76. And so anyway, after that, I just kept doing it until I got let go in 81. But uh, after, Gordon, after Gordon came back after six or seven weeks, you know, the fans protested so much about Freddie doing the show that they relented, relented to let Gordon work down there. But he didn't stay much longer than that. Because no, I he, guess wasn't, it was, he wasn't there. But, and then after that, they, um, <clears throat> they brought back uh, Charlie Platt. See when yep. when when Lee had it, when Lee had Dothan, Rocky McGuire had Dothan. The uh, Dothan TV was live, and Jerry will remember this. It was live at uh, <clears throat> four o'clock in the afternoon on Saturdays. Exactly. And then they worked uh, Saturday night was Quincy, wasn't it, Jerry? Quincy, you're right. Yeah. They drove from Dothan to Quincy, which is about a two-hour drive. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the um, TV announcers were um, John Gauz and, and Al Roberts, and Charlie Platt just did the ring announcing. That's all he did was the introductions. And then he also did the ring, ring uh, introductions for the house shows at the, the Farm Center on Friday nights. But then all that changed when Fuller started. He brought Gordon in, and then he switched to um, Charlie Platt and John Gauss. I don't know whatever became of John Gauss, 
but he kind of fell by the wayside, and, and Al Roberts came back, and Charlie was the main person, and Al just was his co-host. And then um, Al was gone, and they brought in Thatcher. No, they brought in Dick Steinborn. Steinborn did it for a month or so, and then Thatcher came in. Well, then Thatcher was gone and went back to Knoxville, and Al Roberts was back. So, And then that's pretty much the way it stayed. And then it was just Charlie by himself, and then they brought in Rick Stewart around 82, 83, somewhere in that, that time frame, and that's the way it finished up. It, And then Charlie was gone, and, and uh, uh, Rick Stewart was pretty much doing it on his own. How long did Fuller have that territory, Mike? He bought it in uh, January 1978, and he went. He sold it a couple of times to David Woods, and then bought it back from him. But it stayed uh, as continental, I think, 88. So 10 years, 10, 11 years, something like that. And like I said, in in the meantime, you know, there was a there was a brief run when when he sold it to um, David Woods, which David Woods was a uh, his father was a uh, World War II veteran named Charles Woods who owned tons of media, all the you know the television. I think he owned where we taped in in Dothan. Um, I can't recall what the TV station was at that, that WDAM or whatever it was. Um, he owned it. He owned a slew of radio stations. But uh, if you remember him, he was he had was a, a I don't know if he was an Air Force pilot or what it was, but he was he was horribly injured in an airplane crash, yeah, and he had he way. had no ears, with a badly scarred face, and wore an eye patch, and was bald. And he ran for governor every time the doors were open. <laughs> and that's, you know, I didn't know who he was except for running for when I was a kid, except he ran for governor all the time. Right. Never got elected, obviously. But uh, And then when I got in the wrestling business, I found out that, you know, he was a media conglomerate who, who owned all these, you know, media stations. And David Wood was his son. Well, that's I how. That. I wasn't long. Ronnie West was telling me about all that. Fuller sold sold it, the promotion to him, and that's when it changed to Continental. Well, Fuller had no intention. He he had a bunch, I think, bad debt or something, and he sold it, hoping to get away, you know, get all that out of out from under him, and then turned around and bought it back. Ron Ron West was involved in all that stuff, and he was telling me about. About how it all went, I think he brokered the deal, and then you know, kind of stayed on with David Woods to help him out, you know, doing booking and stuff, knowing good and well Fuller was going to buy it back. I think if he had it a year, I'd be surprised. I don't even think he had it that long, but then Fuller bought it back. But he had, yeah, it was it was more or less. Other than that, that brief time, Fuller had it for for ten or eleven years down there. See, uh, Lee had wanted to sell it to. I think Bobby's told the story here. He he had initially uh, in '76 had broke kind of brokered a deal with Barnett, 
Barnett was going to buy that territory down there. And the deal was they were going to wrap up, um, close down Gulf Coast in the end of November, go totally black in December, and then Barnett was going to open up in January, February of 77. Well, Rocky McGuire took it upon himself. All the territories went black, and Barnett sent guys down to run, uh, did a couple of shows in Dothan using guys from Georgia, using guys from Florida. He pulled guys he pulled guys like Mike Graham, Steve Kern, Bob Backlin up from Florida. Uh your brother came down from came from Georgia along with Dick Slater and Wrestling Two and Abdullah. So it was a mixture. Those two cards were a mixture of Georgia and Florida guys. Well those they ran those on Friday night. Well Rocky McGuire took it upon himself to book some of the Gulf Coast guys in Quincy on those the Saturday nights following that when they were not supposed to be running any Gulf Coast cards. Well, that blew the whole deal. Barnett backed out of it. So Lee well, had to Rocky kind of scratch. Was, was Rocky totally pushed out? I, I guess he was thinking he was going to be once Lee sold it to Barnett. And so he kind of uh, – I'm getting all this from Kelly now, and I know, I know Rocky did – run cards because I've got clippings for that but uh, this is what I'm getting from when, what Kelly told me was Rocky screwed up the whole thing by running those shows and Barnett backed out of it what was what was uh, what was Rocky's actual deal there in Dothan Mike? you know nobody really know he he was he booked the territory um, Rocky first came into that that era he was <clears throat> He was a a branch Welch, for lack of a better term. Um, I did not know he that. was from uh, he was from uh, Dyersburg, so he was entrenched with all of them, and he refereed. Uh, he first started in uh, with Fuller when Fuller had the territory. He was a referee, and then he, uh, you know, when Fuller would decide he needed to come back and wrestle. You know, of course, back in those days, the the it was um, since the commissions weren't smart, it was frowned upon for a an active competitor to also hold a promoter's license. So they would have to pull in somebody and and set up as a as a front as the promoter. Well, Rocky was one of the guys that they did that with. And then when Fuller sold out, Rocky went out to. Um, Arizona with him when he tried to run in Phoenix and then the next thing you know he's back and he's running you know he's pretty much booking the the Gulf Coast territory for Lee and he had all of it he had Mobile he had uh you know Pensacola he had the Dothan Panama City and all that and uh when they opened up uh Skip Wetchin ran Mississippi for Lee and then when they opened up Louisiana, they shut down Mississippi and opened up Louisiana in 64. Billy Golden was booking down there for Lee. But Rocky still had everything else. And then when they fired uh, Billy Golden about midway through 1968, 
Kelly took over booking in Louisiana. And that wasn't 68, that was 67. And then when they closed down Louisiana and pulled out of Louisiana and reopened Mississippi, Kelly started booking Mississippi, and then they gave Bob Kelly uh, Mobile and Pensacola. So he had all of Mississippi, Mobile and Pensacola, and Rocky had the Dothan Inn, which was uh, Dothan, Quincy, Panama City, uh, whatever spot shows they ran, you know, Valparaiso and whatever spot shows he ran on that end. Um, what, was his, what was his cut out of it? He never, as far as I know, he never really owned anything as far as points in the office. Now, he may have, but Kelly did. But Kelly, he if he Rocky owned any, Kelly didn't know it. But then those two didn't get along, so it wouldn't wouldn't been surprising to me that Lee just never told him. But there was a lot of times that, that uh, and again, I'm getting this from Kelly, that Rocky tried to pull the rug out from under Lee whenever, you know, he would go to the television stations and try and work deals with the television stations that, uh, you know, that, that Lee, he'd, tell, he'd, he'd lie to him, tell him Lee was about to go out of business and he was going to run, take over and everything, and he was trying to get all that. And Kelly kept saying, you know, I don't know why, and even Bobby Field said, I don't know why in the world Lee never fired him, never got rid of him. And he, they all figured he had something on Lee or something. I don't know. But he was entrenched with those well because even when Ron bought out um, everything and he took over, he didn't he – didn't, you know, use Rocky to do any booking. Bob Armstrong did the booking for all of it. Of course, you know, they ran they ran the same show. You know, they just bicycled it, and they did they did the same show with the same matches, same finishes everywhere but, but Pensacola. Pensacola was the only town that, that had different, you know, changed things up because other than that, they just did the loop. But... Um, Rocky at that time, by that time, and he he had been even when he was uh, was booking for Lee, he was a used car salesman in Pensacola. He lived in Pensacola, and uh, he um, he would come to Mobile. At first, they used the same ring announcer at Mobile House for the house shows. Jack, a guy by the name of Jack Bitterman. I don't know if you remember him or not, Jerry. Um, Jack was uh, Jack worked for the Mobile Press Register, and he also was their first TV commentator when they did Mobile Live um, back in the 50s. And then when they, um, in 76, when they lost their their contract with, with Channel 3 in Pensacola and started taping the house shows in Mobile and editing, editing that into their television program, Jack, they brought used Jack again because he was already there. He did the house announcing. But uh, Jack was their contact, and why they got such big write-ups in the newspapers because Jack worked for the Mobile Press Register as well. He had a he was was a well-known you know disc jockey in the 40s and 50s and all that before he got involved with wrestling. But anyway, after Fuller um, took over, Jack stayed there and was still doing the ring announcing in Mobile. Then he had a um, massive aneurysm and died in his house in probably 
early 79, something like that. So Rocky started coming over and doing the ring announcer. As far as I know, that was all Rocky had to do with that. And then after a while, um, well, Rocky was still doing it when I got out. Got out of the business in, in 82. Rocky was still doing the ring announcing there. Well, I always enjoyed going down there for Rocky. I, I, Rocky was, was a great guy. I loved him to death. Oh, he was sneaky he was. as all he could be. But um, he tried every way he could to get me out and into not getting in the wrestling business. Tried to talk me out of it. But well, I wouldn't hear sneaky, of it. When you, when you say sneaky, how many of them wasn't? That's true. But, you know, the funny thing about him, well, Rocky, even before he got in with the Welches, he and Don Carson grew up together in Cleveland. Is that right? Mm-hmm. They were boyhood friends. I'd be dog. Yep. But uh, his real name was Norman McGuire, Norman H. McGuire. You know, his son Jimmy was a referee there. Yeah, where's Jimmy now? Jimmy's been dead for, oh, God. Jimmy's been dead 10, 12 years now. Really? He died before Ricky Gibson did, yeah. The last time I was around him, he and I flew from Atlanta to Huntington, West Virginia. That was the last time I was ever around him. He was a referee in here in uh, Georgia. Well, he was out in, wasn't he? I don't know if he was in Kansas City when you were there, but he he spent some time in Kansas City refereeing, too. Uh, he probably did when Buck was booking. Because I've seen some um, some Central States tape or tapes where he was the, uh, the referee there. Yeah, that, that probably when Buck was out there. Well, what happened to him? To be honest with you, I don't remember how he died, but I'm sure it was either alcohol yeah. or drug related. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I, like I know. Him. I, I know like, when uh, it was shortly before or after I had that little short run working for Fuller, he and Ricky Gibson had gotten arrested. They had broken into somebody's apartment. I don't know it was a drug dealer or somebody and tried to rob them or something. But they had they were they were in jail for doing that. Wow, no kidding. Uh, uh-uh. but you know Ricky Gibson and, and Jimmy Golden. They were boyhood friends, too, because when Billy was booking Louisiana, Ricky's dad uh, worked down there and drove the ring truck for them. And Ricky yeah, was you know, 13, 14 years old. He and Jimmy Golden were both about the same age, and, and Billy would do would They put out the – they'd go from town to town putting out the posters. And uh, – Roberto Soto, when he was working down there, it was as Pepe Perez. He and he and Ramon were working as a tag team. Roberto was only seventeen. His first car was a Mustang that used to belong to Jimmy Golden. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he bought it from Billy. How do you get all this? Didn't have a driver's like... license, huh? <laughs> How do you get this information, and how do you retain it? The guys tell me. I mean, Roberto was telling me. He said he didn't even have a driver's license, but he was driving. He, he said he, his first car, he bought a bought a uh, a Mustang from uh, from 
Billy Golden, and he said how it how it got financed was a guy by the name, and I don't know if you ever worked with this guy or ever run across this guy, um, Jerry. The only place I I know he ever worked, he worked in uh, worked for for Lee in the Gulf Coast territory, but every once in a while he'd go to Louisiana and work uh, for McGurk, but only in Louisiana. A guy by the name of Bruce Austin. I, I, I never Bruce was a and still is to this day. He's a full time banker. That's all he's ever done. He was a banker, but he wrestled on the side. Well, he was a loan officer, and he got Soto the loan for the car to to buy the car. When he, and the only and the only reason he loaned him the money because nobody else would have done it because I mean Roberto was only seventeen years old, didn't have a driver's license, but Bruce, being a wrestler. And being a loan officer, he got him the loan. <laughs> you imagine that today? No. Yeah. Yeah, really. But uh, as far as the other, as the second part of your question, how I remember all this stuff, I couldn't couldn't tell you. Well, being a historian helps, but uh, still, you yes, there's just certain yes, amount of there's just certain amount of information that's that's down on paper, and then you got to carry a, a lot of stuff that uh, you know just in your head. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he'd like to talk to uh, Jerry, so let's get uh, Dennis Mitchell here in a, on a minute so he can comment on our discussion here tonight. Dennis, you there? Yes, sir. How y'all doing tonight, guys? Oh, good, we're chatting Dennis. away. Well, good. I enjoyed all that Professor Norris talking tonight with the <laughs> knowledge, man. It, it, <laughs> It means a lot to me, guys, and, and all that. So I'm glad Jerry's doing good in Savannah with all he's been through. I'm glad y'all made it all right, Jerry. And I appreciate that, Dennis. We're doing good. I, God bless us. I, I'll tell you that. There's no doubt. No doubt about it, Jerry. Well, guys, I'll tell you what. I enjoy y'all talking about Rocky McGuire, a funny story about Rocky McGuire. I didn't know who he was till much later on. There was a guy that used to promote Montgomery after Continental went out of business in 89, named Donnie Martin, the Rockin' Rebel. He was probably weighed 120 pounds, and he was like 5'4". And during the time when he booked Montgomery, Rocky McGuire booked a little. Rocky McGuire used to live in Montgomery, too. I didn't I didn't know if y'all knew that. Rocky's been dead oh, for a lot that. of years. Yeah, he used to live in Montgomery. Yeah, he used to live in Montgomery. He used to live... In Forest Hill subdivision in Montgomery a long time ago. So sometimes you learn something new every, every day and all that. And before I called y'all tonight and all, I just got back from visitation. I went to a friend's funeral, not his funeral, but his visitation. He was 90 years old. Uh-huh. And get this, he used to be police chief here in Montgomery, a guy named Drew Lackey. On a historical note, he arrested Rosa Rosa Parks. Wow! Back in fifty, so that's a lot of history there. And yes, yeah, sir. He lived along. At least he made it nine. He he died the same age as Sterling Brewer, and all that. I didn't know much about Sterling Brewer, but sound like from what Michael was talking about, he was a pretty good wrestling announcer and and all that. So was Sterling Brewer from Tennessee originally, or was he from Birmingham? I think he was from Birmingham. Was he from Indiana? Uh, really? Yeah, something I read said that on one of the other websites just said that he was originally from Indiana, but that doesn't mean that he 
lived there a long time. You know, well, especially of, if he was in the yeah, if he was in the radio business, he probably lived in a lot of places. Right. I think uh, I think he made his home in Birmingham. Well, a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people associate Nick Goulas with Nashville because Not he lived he lived in, in Hendersonville, but he was originally from Birmingham. He yeah. had Nick was from a family, the Goulas family. Nick was the only one that was involved in wrestling, even though I think he had a brother or, or somebody related to him named Gus that tried to run Huntsville at one point. But um, Nick's whole family was um, in the restaurant business. Goulas restaurants were well known throughout Southeast. There was one in Mobile. Yeah. Um, ever have you ever heard that? Man, that's amazing. Did Nick ever have any restaurants in Montgomery that you know of, Michael? Long time ago. I don't know if there was ever a Goulas restaurant there or not. I th- I'm yeah. sure there was. I know there was one in, in Montgomery, and there was one in yeah. Mobile that was. I think one of his brothers ran it. Yeah, and I want to ask you something too, Michael. I, he was a wrestling announcer. He worked for Stu Hart in Calgary, and he worked in Indiana. Do you remember Sam Miniker? Miniker? Oh yeah, Miniker. Sam Miniker yes. was a wrestler. If you've hey, ever well, seen the movie. Um, Alias the Champ with Gorgeous George in it. Yeah. Gorgeous George was the star of it. Sam Meneker was his co-star. He was in that, but he was also... Sam Meneker is in the movie Mighty Joe Young. Man, I didn't know that. He was one that. of the wrestlers that uh, that did the uh, tug-of-war with, uh, with the monkey. Um, yeah. It was him. It was Man Mountain Dean. It was Primo Carnera. Uh, Phil Olson, the Swedish Angel, uh, yeah. Henry, Henry Kulkovic, Bomber yeah. Kulkovic, um, or Bomber Kulki, I think was his was his ring name. He was one of the others. Man, that's, yeah. Where was Sam? Where was Sam from? Was he from St. Louis or was he from Indiana or was he from Calgary? I want to say he was from Chicago. He was married to uh, well before he did uh, any of those. His first. Uh, gig as a, a ring announcer was in Amarillo. Yeah. And then he uh, he worked in Australia. He was, uh, when they first opened, uh, when Barnett first opened Australia, uh, Miniger was over there, and then they brought in a guy by the name of Jack Little, who was uh, the Los Angeles ring announcer when Barnett and Doyle were running Los Angeles in the early 50s, or Johnny Doyle, not Barnett. Barnett wasn't involved in that. Johnny Doyle was. So when Menneker decided to uh, come back to uh, the States, they brought Jack Little in, and Jack Little was there for 20 years after that. But anyway, uh, Menneker was married to June Byers at one time. Oh, Um, man, I... Right, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, he was. He yeah. was. Um, I don't think he was ever a big star in the wrestling business, but he was well enough. He was more uh, involved in behind the scenes and booking a lot more than a lot I, of people I think he, realize. I think it. he wrote a column in one of the uh, in one of the magazines for a while. Uh, he probably did. I'm sure. I'm thinking, yeah, you I know, just... uh, one of the after mags. I'm pretty sure he he. He he wrote a column, you know that was. Uh, it was probably was a Kiter one, the uh, Wrestling Review or all that, because you know uh, a lot of the guys did that. Wild Red Berry did for a while, and uh, or it might even been a Ring magazine, because <clears throat> Pfeffer did uh, wrote for Ring magazine, Ring Wrestling for a while before he died, and 
but the uh, Wrestling Review and, and Wrestling Monthly, Wild Red Berry and uh, uh, Saul Weineker both had regular columns in there, so Minneker probably had one as well at one point. Yeah. I want to ask you too, Michael, you know, you're talking about ring announcers. Like when you started wrestling around 79 and when you wrestled in Montgomery, who was the ring announcer here at Montgomery? He was a, he had like a Jerry Curl. He was gray headed. He wore glasses. He wore like a. I remember him, but I I, I don't remember his name. I just wonder. Um, you know, he wore like he wore like a a suit, sort of not a prison suit. It's like a bow, not a bow tie. But it's one of those kind of like, look like he he would wear it to someone's wedding or something. You know, he, yeah. I remember that. I remember that. One of, those, did, you know? one of those ties that crossed in the middle uh, and had a little stud yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I was 11 years old then, Jay. I remember that like it was yesterday. My dad took me wrestling that night for my birthday. So. Was that the first birthday. one you went? First live match you went to, Dan? It was first live one. I remember it real well. Burhead Jones wrestled. I remember Austin and I wrestled Jerry's brother, Ted. You know, I was rooting for Ted. That's when Austin was a bad guy then. And in Alabama, and Herb Calvert wrestled Ron Slinker. And two weeks later, we went back. Mass Superstar wrestled Ron Slinker. You know? You know what? What? You know who the Mass Superstar was? Bill Eady. Nope. Tell me, who, who my... His name was Bill, but it wasn't Bill Eady. His name was Bill Terry, better why, otherwise known as Kurt Von Hess. Really, I learned. I learned yeah, they uh, that was in that was in seventy late seventy eight, early seventy nine. Yeah. Um. The funny thing was, Eady was cutting the interviews at, at TBS. Yeah. And. Uh, sending the tape to Fuller, and they would edit it into his TV program, uh, Bill would do that. You know, I asked Bill about that, and Bill didn't remember doing that. But, you know, of course you don't remember that. But it was either Gordon or or Freddie would cut an interview with him, and he'd say, you know, I'm coming to to Mobile, and I'm going to wrestle Ron Fuller, and I'm going to do this. But when the match time come, it was was Kurt Von Hess under that. With the with the he had on you know the outfit like Edie used to wear, but it was Kurt Von Hess. Wow! <laughs> and yeah, Kurt was around because when uh, Kurt was in Mobile in '77, he was Gulf Coast champion in '77, and but he was gone by the time uh, Lee sold out. He had come to Georgia, and I think he was just you know doing mid card stuff in Georgia. And uh, then when Ron bought out and reopened, he had a version of the Assassins <laughs> in in the Gulf Coast or in the southeastern area. That's and nice. it was it was Roger Smith and uh, Randy Cully. Oh man! Well, they you. went up to they stayed around for a while, and then they went up to uh, work. Um, and for Ron in Knoxville, because Ron still had what, Knoxville. What year was time. what year was that, Mike? Seventy-eight. Yeah. And then while they were up there, uh, Roger left. Yeah. And 
they brought Randy Cully in to be the assassin up to team with Randy Randy uh, up there, and then they came back to Mobile. Yeah. And uh, I could always tell it was was Kurt Von Hess because he had a very unique way of walking, and you could put a mask okay. on him, hide him up under whatever you want outfit you want to hide him, the full body suit and all that. I could tell it was him. And then uh, the assassins left, and that's when he started doing the superstar gimmick. And he only did it four or five weeks. Yeah, I know. It didn't last. Long. It wasn't very long. I remember that. I remember some of the matches then, you know. And and my dad wasn't a big wrestling fan. His dad was a big wrestling fan. My granddaddy was a big wrestling fan. And, of course, my dad was at a wrestling match when he was 10 years old in Roanoke, Alabama. And my granddaddy died, and so my dad was a wrestling fan, but he took me twice. That's the only time my dad took me to wrestling matches. That's about it. But you know, it was good memories because I went to see something live back in '79, and I had a good time. I was 11 years old, and something you never forget in life. You know. Did you get somebody else? Did you get somebody else to take care of that, Dennis? Yes. Did you yeah. get somebody else to take you after that? Uh, back home, my mom and dad dropped me off. I went back to wrestling matches around the 85 time frame at the Civic Center, the Montgomery Dole Civic Center, you know. And, yeah. And I went watched a lot of them up to 89, Not right at the end, not when Ron Storer had that great match with Cactus Jack McFoley when they brought in the arena. That's when David Woods owned it or sold it back to Fuller. Y'all was talking about earlier. And all, I guess, i got to ask you something about David Woods, Michael. You know, do you think David was a total mark? Or, I know he, I know he's still on WCLV and Montgomery still. You think he was naive? About yeah, I think so. I, the way Ron West told me about it, he was, you know, you know, he was associated with the business because he owned those stations in Dothan and everything, and he was um, he was from Dothan, right. and you know, and, and everything. And so, I think he was on the the peripheral of the business, and Ron spotted somebody with a lot of money that uh, he could probably work a deal with, and yeah. uh, you know, because that was that was a Welsh Fuller trademark, you know, when. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, that's how that's how Lee ended up buying the Gulf Coast territory in the beginning, was because Buddy owned a lot of Buddy owned the ranch over in in uh, uh, Loxley, Loxley, Alabama. Loxley, Alabama. Yeah, and uh, he he owned a bunch of ta- owed a bunch of taxes on it. Uh oh. So uh, in order to pay the taxes off. He told Lee, he said, he talked Lee into buying the territory. He said, but as a condition of buying the territory, you got to buy the property in Loxley. So Uh that became the world-famous Fields Brothers Ranch. I got it. At those houses that were on that property over there, because at one time Joe Scarpa lived over there, Charlie uh, Charlie Carr lived there. Um, You know, Kelly, when Kelly first came down from, uh, from... he was from Louisville, but he first came to Mobile from North Bay, Ontario. Wow. Him and him and Chris and and a carload of kids. 
come down there. They lived on the on the Fields Brothers Ranch there. Yeah, I would imagine if you if, if before they tore them down, if you went through those old barns out there on that ranch, there's no telling what you'd find, rings and everything else. That's amazing about all the history the Gulf Coast of Southeast Wrestling and Continental and and all that. I know it was a bygone era, but I enjoyed it when I watched it when I was a kid in here in Montgomery and and all that. You learn. You, I learned a lot from you, Mike. I learned a lot from all y'all. Uh, Dennis, uh, knowing what you know about the business now, Dennis, do you wish that you had uh, come along earlier so that you could have seen some of the stuff that uh, uh, happened before you were able to start seeing TV and go into the matches? Yeah, I do. You know, I'm 48 years old. I was born in 68. Maybe if I was 10 years or 15 years older, and I, that would have been the real heyday of wrestling. If you think That's about right. It with, you You're know, right. But I was, I was part of the last generation. Yep. If that that's, makes that's any a, sense. That, yeah. that, that's a very good uh, statement that you just made right there, uh, Dennis. You were probably the last generation of people that really understood the regional wrestling uh, setup and how these guys did what they did. And, uh, you know, I can tell that you, you talk about Mike being a historian, but uh, I can tell you are really, really familiar with that area over there and not just the things that happened, you know, as you got older, but a lot of the things that happened before your time. Yeah, you know, I, I read up a lot about wrestling, and I, and I go in K-Fabe memories a lot. I don't post nothing. I just read about K-Fabe. I go on Wrestling Observer and all that all that good stuff and, and and all that. I was going to ask you one other question, Mike, before I let you go. During the time when the Fullers promoted Southeastern and all, I don't know if you know this or not, was there ever an attempt to bring Roddy Parker in? Or no. 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 Ron, Ron kept a very small crew. He never had more than 8, 10, 12 guys, you know, you know, as as far as a crew goes. Now, the only time he would have done that, but Piper, well, you have to remember when Piper was in Georgia, when he was doing the the play-by-play with Gordon, he was uh, he was mainly working for Crockett. Right. Right. And Ole was booking both at the time. Right. Um, right. The only time, you know, they would periodically bring guys from Atlanta over, but they'd only work um, Birmingham because it was a wow. short trip. I know Jerry and Ted came over several times. Tommy Rich, wow. the only time Tommy Rich, you know, until he came and worked full-time in, in uh, Continental after, uh, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling was no more, you know, he would, he would work uh, Birmingham. Wrestling right. too would. They would bring a lot of guys over. Ted DiBiase. Yeah. They were working, you know, big on Atlanta TV. They'd bring them over to to pop the houses in Birmingham, but they wouldn't work any of the other towns because the the trip was too long. And Saturday and night think, was yeah. always, you know, tied up. They couldn't do Dothan on Saturday night because what was Saturday night for the Georgia Loop? Uh, Marietta. No, they did. They did. Uh, yeah, no, no Saturday. Saturday night was uh, Griffin. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, Griffin and 
Well, they did run Carrollton on Saturday night. Carrollton, that's it, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering about that, guys. Guys, y'all have a good night. Keep up the you good too, work. You too, Dennis. I appreciate it. Thank All you, right. Dennis. Take care. Bye. All right. Well, guys, I'm going to be right behind Dennis. i got I got to split. All right. Are you, I was going to ask you, you have gone back to work, right? Yes, yes, yes. What are you able to do on the island? Uh, it's, it's, uh, they get, they get, they have so much, you know, trees and, you know, where they'd cut off the, uh, cut them out the streets and all this. That was, when I was there, uh, Tuesday, it's still a lot of stuff they got to get picked up yet. And they got a place now where they, they haul it and, uh, they got, you know, big chippers there. They chip it up and what they could do with all that mulch. I have no idea. But so you, you just running up and down the beach, pushing the alligators that may have washed ashore back in yeah, the water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, the alligators and the sharks and all that, you just kind of push them back in the water, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be a while, but they've done a, you know, a great job. The, the city has entirely. They've done a good job. All that water they've washed up on there, anybody who's, who's got a pool still standing, probably full of snakes at this point. Yeah, but, yeah I wouldn't doubt <laughs> it. But. All right, man. Uh, Enjoy it, Jerry. I'll see you next week. Right, All right, right here. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, a uh, playoff update. It is the top of the fourth inning, and the Chicago Cubs are up one to nothing at this point. You know, it's very good the way you do that. Uh, we were talking about Skip Carey last week, I, I, or the last time we were on. I think we were on last week. Uh, you know, with his with his famous father, when he came to Atlanta, he went to work. Uh, this was back in the late 50s. Uh, early 60s. He went for, to work for a station called WAKE, and I think their frequency at that time was 1340. I can't remember for sure. But at any rate, they had been a, a very weak uh, signal, and uh, they had tried out 40 for a while. Uh, but then they went to more of an adult format and took CBS as their affiliate. But Skip worked for them, uh, you know, just to try to get experience. And uh, they were doing the Atlanta Crackers games. And and uh, so anyway, uh, when the Crackers were in town, Skip would be there at the old uh, ballpark there on Ponce de Leon, and he'd do right. play-by-play. And when they were out of town, he couldn't, uh, they couldn't afford to send him anywhere to, uh, you know, to wherever they were playing. Uh, and so he would do what was called a recreation. And back in the 40s, this was very common even with the big uh you know with 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 the big league players uh that they'd have teletype coming in with uh right. you know with the uh not play by play per se the announcer would have to make that up but each inning results and uh the announcer would not only do a play by play out of his head but they had a little guy that would uh it was a little gimmick that was made up that he would hit that sounded like a bat hitting the ball. Bat, right, the the sound effects. You know who yeah. else got their their start in the entertainment business doing that? No. Ronald Reagan. Really? Yeah, I can't remember the team he worked for, but it was the same deal. He read the teletype and and, and uh did the uh, play-by-play. But his was a it was a it wasn't a um you know, semi like the Crackers were back in those days. Right, it was, it was a big league, was a major league yeah. team that he, that he played. Yeah, in the forties, in the forties and thirties and forties, when they did that, you know, because they couldn't they couldn't afford to travel like that, 
uh, and they didn't have the way to do it. Uh, yeah, that was common for the big league teams to do that. But by the time Skip was doing it, that was no longer being done, you know, uh, for right. the major leagues. But uh, him doing it for the Crackers, uh, you know, and he, I think they'd probably say at the beginning and they'd say it at the ending. But other than that, you know, since he did the actual play-by-play from Ponce de Leon when they, had, when they were playing there, I don't think people as a general rule knew that he was – not doing it live, you know, because they had crowd, uh, you know, response and everything else. So it was, uh, it was uh, quite a, uh, quite a procedure as to what he did there on the air to uh, recreate the Cracker Games. Did they only do the Cracker Games on uh, on radio? Did they televise them? Uh, no, no, they were. Well, did they did they televise Cracker Games here? I'm 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 trying to remember if they did that. And in my mind, I don't I don't remember that happening. I can remember with my father uh, in the early 50s uh, sitting by the radio. I mean, you know, he'd be outside, and uh, he had a little radio out there, and Country Brown, the guy that was kind of one of the stars of the Crackers, uh, I, can, I can remember him listening to the games and, and me listening a little bit. Uh, but I, to my to the life of me, I can't remember the Crackers as a, as a regular thing having uh, – uh, any kind of TV, and you know, probably if it had been today, maybe they would because of all the uh, digital type stations that are sub channels. But uh, certainly then, when you only had two or three channels, Atlanta only had two channels uh, up until the late fifties. Channel two, of course, uh, which was the NBC uh, affiliate, and uh, uh, Channel five, which was CBS. And Channel five also was a secondary affiliate for DuMont, and uh, there was never a primary DuMont affiliate here in Atlanta. And uh, Channel 8, which is the, uh, you know, the uh, PBS uh, signal now on their frequency uh, out of Athens, uh, was actually what is now Channel 11. And uh, they they wanted to move Channel 8 away from Channel 5 because there was some bleed over. And uh, so when Channel 11 went on the air, uh, that's when uh, Channel 8 became what they then called an educational channel. Look at your switchboard. Bobby's on hold. All right. Hold on. Let's see if I can <laughs> You getting the text from him? Is he on his cell? Yeah. One of our listeners, Kevin Penley, just sent me a Facebook message too that he um there's an article on the uh, Alabama newspaper website al.com on Sterling Brewer. Okay. Great. Yes, Bobby is on the line. So Bobby, do you know whether or not they televised the Cracker games? Do you remember? Well, is he there? Uh I'll hit it again, but he uh, appears to be live. Bobby, you there? Well, they're giving up. Yes, I'm, I've, I've got him uh, clicked in. Hmm. To my knowledge, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't. This, you know, I, I, unless maybe they did it just as a, a gimmick every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, because I would imagine that wouldn't be if if they were network affiliated, they weren't really if they had a whole lot of local programming, especially right. a block that it would have taken to you know length enough time to, to do a, a ball game. Now Ernie yeah, Johnson, yeah. Now he, I know he was a player. He was a pitcher, right, for the Milwaukee right. Braves. Yep. Yep. Did, another you know, thing that was. Go ahead. I was just going to say another thing that was interesting about Atlanta back in the 50s when the East Coast would go on Eastern Daylight Time, uh, Georgia didn't go on Eastern Daylight Time. So that was when uh, Atlanta first started trying to kinescope uh, the network programs to run them an hour late. It came into a problem, though, when they would have sports programs on. Uh, because they would actually kinescope them. And if you were listening to WSB Radio, uh, which NBC at that time carried the Friday night fights, uh, they, you know, the fight would be live and uh, it would be over before it ever ran on WSB TV. And uh, there was, you know, there was problems like that. People would know who the, you know, if they wanted to, they'd listen to the radio real quick. They'd know who won. And uh, then they wouldn't tune into it on on the television. Okay. I, um, I forget when they when Atlanta or Georgia first started going to Eastern Daylight. I think it was when Jimmy Carter was president. I don't know. You know, I, they, they, of course, I didn't know stuff like that existed when I lived in Columbus, so I wouldn't have known one way or the other. Right. And Columbus was always odd because right there, like you said, on the Alabama line, I'm sure it was difficult for people. You know that lived in one state on one uh, on one time zone, and then something. worked in another state on a different time zone. Yeah, I'm seeing a re- news see report I here. I was talking about Matt uh, Marks very early. He was in a medically induced coma. He had a seizure that caused him his lung to collapse, but now he's been he's been woken up from the coma, so he is improving. So that's good news. Great. I'm going to see if Bobby can try to call in again because that when he called in, I don't know how long he had been uh, holding there, but uh, when I clicked on him, uh, there was no there was no signal. So Bobby, if, uh, if you've got any way of uh, hearing what we're doing here, uh, well, he sent me the message five minutes ago. So and I answered him right back. So she said I'm on hold, and I said okay. So. Uh, he's not, not sure, but hopefully he'll call back. But um, before we run out of time, but <laughs> but That's getting right. back to what I was asking about, and, and I know this has got nothing to do with wrestling and everything. But Ernie Johnson was he? When did he become a sports commentator for the Braves? You know, I once again not being a big uh, baseball fan, I can't exactly tell you. But it was during, the, you know, the time when it was becoming common after Joe Garagiola, where former uh, players uh, would would start doing color, yeah. as it was called. And uh, as they became more prominent, then a lot of them started uh, doing play-by-play. Uh, but I can't tell you exactly when it was that happened. Because I know when I first started watching in the early 80s, it was him, Skip Carey, and uh, Pete Van Weeren. Right, and I think, Bobby, you there now? Can you hear me? Yes, yeah. we can. 
not good. I was talking earlier. You, it wouldn't, I don't know. This thing's cut no, me you, off two or three times. It said, thank you for calling Pete State, and it hung up. But anyway. Yeah, you, uh, weren't, uh, Ernie, you weren't coming through. Yeah, Ernie Johnson and Milo Hamilton were the original broadcast team when the race started in 66. Right. Okay. And then and then there, there, were, there was a personality clash there because Milo would cut in on Ernie because Milo Hamilton was determined he was going to be the voice on Hank Aaron's historic home run. Mm-hmm. So it created a problem, and then Ernie Johnson became director of broadcasting. So that's why Ernie was around all those years, and then the broadcast team grew. But yeah, he was he was the original one of the original pair when they first started in '66. And uh, he's no <clears throat> no longer called Ernie Johnson Jr. He's just Ernie Johnson now. He is. He's doing the uh, playoff games for TBS, so I guess he's still affiliated with TBS. Yeah, he's one of their sports guys, I guess. I heard you started to give a score, and it cut me off. Are the Cubs up? Yeah, one to nothing. Okay. Bottom bottom of the fourth, the Dodgers are batting. One out with a runner on second. I'm afraid, I'm afraid our friend Bo James is not going to survive if they don't pull this thing out. <laughs> I understand that, but uh, they were awake last night. They got ten runs last night, but they may have shot their wad because they've only got one run through four innings of night. So, but it was late in the game when they they started hitting last night, and they just picked yeah. off the runner um, that was at second. The Dodger he was trying to steal third, and they picked him off. I have to say they they've got a Chicago's got a whale of a catcher. This guy's nailed everybody he's tried since I've been watching the, yeah. the games. <clears throat> well, I missed I missed the Jerry Oates story. Was it worth a week's wait? Yeah, it was. Cause it's pretty good. I'm gonna have to go back to he's probably uh, other than him and Klondike Bill, probably nobody else in the world knows knows what he did to the Kelly twins. <laughs> that was that was a funny is story. Is that the deal where he was making the noises? Yep. And they thought it yep. was a car. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've heard and they went, and, yeah. and wound up after they dropped him and, and Klondike off. They went out, wound up finding an all-night uh, mechanic and spent all kind of money getting to check the car out <laughs> for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> but he was talking about their their strange ticks that, that one of them was constantly you know rubbing the dashboard of the car and the other one was adjusting oh, the mirror. They were nuts. I mean, really, certifiable. Well, they were in the right business then, right? Oh, geez. The first <laughs> bump, the first bump I ever had to take as a referee. We were somewhere in a little spot show. I don't even remember where we were, and uh, the, the they lost the match. You know, they lost the match. Well, they wanted to argue with me. You know, well, I didn't know not to stand there and argue, but I mean, I was new, I was green as a gourd, and all of a sudden, one of them, and I don't know which one it was, man, he just lowers a boom on me, and I took a bump, I just laid there, and they left, and finally I rolled out and went to the dressing room, and I and I remember Joe Hamilton went up one side of me and down the other about letting the baby face hit me, and then he explained to me, you don't stand there and argue with the baby face, you can't win, the heat goes off the hill and on to you, so... 
yeah, they were, answer, uh, answer my question. They worked when they first came in here. They were baby faces. Yes, sir. When they were the Kelly twins, they were always baby faces. Yeah. They were they were they were heels and mobile as the, as the Kellys. Uh, I the only time I can ever remember, even in magazines, seeing them with the with the red hair uh, as the Kelly twins, they were were uh, baby faces. And then, of course, later on with the bald heads. Uh, uh, doing the German routine or whatever it was, of course, obviously they were heels, but I can never remember seeing the or reading anything on the Kelly Twins as heels. Yeah, they were. Mobile may have been their first territory, but in '77 they were heels there. Now, when, when did they go to the German gimmick? Uh, '78, '79, early '80s, yeah. yeah. So maybe, maybe that was their transition period, Mike, going over there. Could uh, be. You know, doing the. I baby, think when they uh, left, they left Mobile. They went to Detroit, and they were heels in Detroit because they were the world tag team champions in Detroit there for a while. And then the, from there, I think they came into to uh, Atlanta as the Schmidt twins, and then they went from Atlanta. They went to Memphis, and they were called the Clones. Yeah, I remember something about that too. But you know, uh, as uh, there's not many legit twins in the business, and them being here as the Kelly twins with the red hair and the whole bit, uh, it didn't take a genius to figure out they were the same guys when they came back here with bald heads and you know doing the German bit. You know, they, well, all they... you had to do was all you had to do was get in the ring with them. <laughs> <laughs> or watch them in the dressing room. Uh, game Scott is tied now, guys. The score's tied one to one. But uh, <clears throat> let's see. They were the the Kelly twins, the Smith twins, which was I don't know what their real names were, but they were called Hurricane and Cyclone Smith. But they never worked anywhere but Eastern Canada. Um, the McGuire's, of course. And then later on in the '80s, the Batten twins. That's all I can think of. Even though they 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 build the Von Brauners as twins because uh, Jimmy Brauner and, and Doug Donovan look so much alike, but they weren't even related, much less twins. <coughs> well, they say there is a uh, you know a doppelganger for everybody somewhere. You know how the Von Brauners came about, don't you? Uh, no, you have five minutes and forty-seven seconds to tell us. Our uh, our our buddy Dick Steinborn claims uh, fame for putting them together. He had been working in Tennessee um, with Jimmy Brauner, who at that time was calling himself Count Von Brauner and spelling it <laughs> how his last name was truly spelled: B R B R A W N E R. And then uh, Steinborn went to Amarillo, and Doug Donovan was working out there. And he walked in the dressing room and said, you know, you got a twin working in in, uh, Tennessee. And uh, I don't know if Doug, I'm sure he had crossed paths with Jimmy at one time because he and and his brother, Red Donovan, had worked with the southern part of the U.S. Oh, yeah, for him. Somehow or another, they uh, they hooked up and uh, became the Von Brauners. And 
got uh, Saul Weingroff, who at that time, uh, Saul was a promoter in Miami, was promoting Miami. Uh, opposition to um, Cowboy Luttrell. So I don't know how they hooked up, but they hooked up, and then they started their run. And then when uh, Jimmy Brauner quit, they uh, Doug got his brother Red, who had been working in the Amarillo area, is Red Steiner or Han Steiner. He called himself both. Um, he came in as Eric Von Brauner. And then when he quit, then they got uh, a guy by the name of Willie Rudgowski, who was the uh, had been working as Kurt Von Stroheim. He became the new Kurt Von Brauner. So there's your, there's your German uh, history lesson. Did Saul Weingroff do all the talking for him? As far as I know, yeah. Or I know. Even though Willie Rogowski and Jimmy Brauner were both legitimately well, Willie Rogowski was German. He was from Germany. Uh, Jimmy Brauner was of German descent, but he was <clears throat> he was from the states. But I'm sure they they had a good could. they had a good run in Atlanta in the '60s. Uh, they were the first big heel tag team I ever remember seeing. What year was that? Jay, it had to be in the 60s. It had to be early. Well, I started going to matches in 64, so it had to be, I'd say, 65, 66 maybe, somewhere in there. Yeah, probably, because uh, they split in in Florida in 67. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy quit, and uh, no, I take that back. Jimmy... They did split in Florida, and and Doug, who was Kurt, or no, he was Carl Von Brauner, he went on back up to Tennessee, and Jimmy stayed in Tampa and started teaming with Sputnik. He was still Kurt Von Brauner. Both of them legally changed their names to, Ver, to Von Brauner wow. over the years. And, uh, and but... Um, <clears throat> And then Jimmy Jimmy just kind of got out of the business. Sixty four and sixty five. I was playing with my rock and roll band in high school, so I wasn't watching wrestling very much. It wasn't. Uh, I quit watching regularly in sixty three, and it wasn't until sixty eight when I got out of the army that I started watching it again. So I, I I don't remember myself seeing them working in Atlanta, even though I do remember seeing pictures of the. Uh, of, of the manager with the with the two guys working. Yeah, they, had they, a, had some, ahead, they had some. Serious, they had some serious heat everywhere they went because yeah, you put two Germans with a with a Jewish manager and it was yeah. oh, it was it was it was serious heat. I could imagine. Well, that and I've told this story on here before that that particular deal with the German and and with the Jewish manager is. Uh, is what Gordon got Gordon Soley in the business. The Tampa television commentator was a guy by the name of Salty Saul Fleischman, who did the uh, had a kiddie show. Uh, he did a sailor gimmick, but uh, <clears throat> he was so offended being Jewish himself with uh, Weingroff managing Nazis 
that he promptly walked out, and Gordon, who was uh, well known in the Tampa area for doing uh, commentating and, and uh, announcing at the uh, local stock car races, right? They reached out and got him, and the rest is history. On that note, we're out of we're out of time, Mike. All right, guys. Well, we'll get together next week, and we'll do it again. Good night, everybody. Glad you could join us, Bobby. Good night, guys. See you next week. All right. Thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.